Welcome to the Tradfest podcast, brought to you by the Temple Bar Company. On this week's Tradcast, we take a stroll through St. Patrick's Cathedral, one of Dublin's most historic and iconic buildings, and home to many epic performances at Tradfest. Louis Parmenter describes St. Patrick's Cathedral. So you're very welcome to St. Patrick's Cathedral. We're standing on one of the earliest Christian sites in Ireland. It's thought that there's been a church on the site since around 450 AD, so shortly after the time that Patrick is said to have baptised people on this site using water from the River Poddle, which flowed underneath the cathedral. The building we're standing in now was built between 1220 and 1259 and was restored in the 1860s thanks to the generosity of Sir Benjamin Lee Guinness of the famous Guinness family. The cathedral now is still very much a living, breathing place of worship, but it's also one of Dublin's busiest tourist attractions and is a venue for many different events, graduation ceremonies, concerts, receptions, etc. So it's, it's a very busy living cathedral. Now, will you describe the inside of it to us? If people come in off the street, what can they expect to see here? Sure. Well, it's the largest church in Ireland. It's uh, built in the Anglo-Gothic style, so with the large pointed arches, uh, beautiful stained glass windows. The, the west window we're standing at now depicts 39 scenes in the life of St. Patrick, and that was installed in 1865 at the end of the Guinness Restoration. Again, the window was a gift of Benjamin Lee Guinness. The beautiful tiles uh, were laid in the 1880s by Lord Ardalon, who was a son of Benjamin Lee Guinness. And they were based on some medieval tiles, which we have laid in the baptistry, just as you enter the cathedral. Now, maybe we'll take a walk maybe around the place. You might describe some of the scenes here. I see various items on walls. I see flags. I see lots of different things. Maybe you'll talk us through some of that, uh, Louis. Well, the first monument we come to here is a monument to Carolyn, the last of the Irish bards. One of the events we're very proud to be associated with is Tradfest, and a lot of the artists performing at Tradfest like to come and visit the Carolyn Monument. So Carolyn was the last of the great Irish bards and his tunes have been sort of given a new lease of life by acts like the the Chieftains, for instance. And uh, he he played in the deanery while Jonathan Swift was deanery. So he would have travelled around providing entertainment and being given board and uh, food in return. So this uh, monument here erected uh, by Sidney Lady Morgan in honour of Carolyn. So did he have a relationship and a friendship, let's say, with Dean Swift? Yes, that's our understanding of it, that, that he, he, he was a friend of Swift's and played fairly frequently in the deanery. So it's nothing new then to hear traditional musicians coming in to play in St. Patrick's Cathedral? Absolutely not. In fact, one of our former organists here, Andrew Johnstone, wrote a, a piece of music for organ and illin pipes, which has been performed here several times. Now, you mentioned uh, Dean Swift as well, of course, a very important figure in Irish life and life at the cathedral. Will you just give us a little of his background? 
Sure. Well, Swift is probably the, the most famous character associated with St. Patrick's. And he was Dean of St. Patrick's from 1713 to 1745. And uh, a remarkable man, uh, a man ahead of his time in so many ways. He did an enormous amount of work for uh, people with mental health issues, people living on the streets. Uh, in fact, he left money in his will to found the first hospital in Ireland to treat mental illness, St. Patrick's Hospital or Dean Swift's Hospital, which is still going strong. It's located about a mile from here, just off James's Street. What other events in Irish life are uniquely associated with St. Patrick's Cathedral? Sure. Well, as we're walking up now to this door on a frame, this is known here as the Door of Reconciliation. And in 1492, two great Irish families, the Butlers, who were the Earls of Ormond in Kilkenny, and the Fitzgeralds, who were the Earls of Kildare, were fighting outside the cathedral, uh, which was just outside the old city walls. Now, realising that the fighting was getting out of hand, the Ormonds, the butlers, took sanctuary in the cathedral inside the chapter house. The Kildare family asked them to come out and make peace, but the butlers were afraid that if they left the chapter house, they'd be slaughtered. So Gerard Fitzgerald, the head of the Kildare family, had this hole cut in the door, and he put his arm through to shake hands and make peace. And indeed, peace resulted from that handshake. And the, the famous saying we have, uh, to chance your arm, originates with this uh, exchange. We'll take a stroll around, maybe you can just pick out some of the various items that people might expect to see here when Tradfest isn't on, because uh, Tradfest isn't on all the time here. And uniquely now, when you see the church opened up, it's a majestic building. It is. We try on weekdays, we remove the chairs after our morning service to let people see the beautiful Victorian tiled floor. We put them out again for Evensong. So matins and Evensong are sort of the bookends to our day. They're the morning worship and evening worship, and that's central to everything else that happens here. We do have over 350 events a year, uh, including four Tradfest gigs in, in January and we've had a remarkable array of artists uh, here over, over many years from the various choirs and orchestras in Ireland uh, we've had choirs and orchestras from as far away as Australia the United States Eastern Europe and then closer to home we've had acts like Sharon Shannon the Hothouse Flowers, we've had Gilbert O'Sullivan, so really the cathedral is, 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 is open to, to all people. But those acts of matins and evensong, they bookend our day and, and they're central to what we do. We don't cancel our services if we can, if we can avoid it at all. This is the reason the building exists, to worship God. And uh, yeah, we, we're, while we're open to host as many events as we can, we, we do try and maintain that tradition of worship, which stretches back 800 years. Now, the choral tradition in St. Patrick's is central again to our worship, and the choir school across the road was founded in 1432 by Archbishop Richard Talbot. So that school provided a place for boys with a good singing voice to be educated and then 
to be able to sing the, the daily offices in the cathedral. So that tradition stretching back from 1432, so some 60 years before Columbus sailed across the, the Atlantic. We've changed the boys a few times in that time because their voices break, but uh, it, it's ever developing. We now have a cathedral girls choir as well, and uh, we of course have uh, adult singers as well. And the cathedral choir sing during term time twice a day, uh, six days a week. Uh, they do have some time off during the summer where we tend to have visiting choirs. Again, from this, this summer we'll have visiting choirs from the UK, from the United States and from Sydney, Australia. So that gives us an opportunity to give our own choir a well-deserved break, but also to experience different voices and different, different choirs here in St. Patrick's. We're going to take a stroll through the church, but maybe if there's anything on the right-hand side or on the left-hand side, we're going to walk down the middle. You might describe what I might be missing. Yes, well, just before we leave this area, we have what I think are probably the oldest and newest items of interest in the cathedral. So to my left here, we have a Celtic grave slab, and it's one of six we have here in the building. And they were uncovered on the site of what is now St. Patrick's Park, just to the north of the cathedral. And that was laid out in 1901 by Lord Ivy, another one of Benjamin Lee Guinness's sons. You can see a bit of a recurring theme here with the generosity of the Guinness family to, to St. Patrick's. So that this particular grave slab is thought to have been found on the site of the well that St. Patrick used to baptise people. And just behind us here, then, we have one of the newest statues in the cathedral. And this is uh, an impression of St. Patrick by Irish artist Melanie Labrocki. And it's probably a much more realistic image of Patrick wearing these long flowing robes and a sort of a sandal rather than the one we traditionally see of Patrick with the mitre and pastoral staff. The mitres certainly weren't worn by 4th century, 5th century bishops, so... So if you want to see what the real St. Patrick looked like, you're saying come to St. Patrick's Cathedral? Indeed, indeed. Come, come and visit. Right, Louis. We'll ramble up. Maybe you can point out one or two things as we go. Indeed. We're going to make our way up to the crossing now, just in front of the choir. Now, at the crossing here, we have the State Pew, which is where the President of Ireland sits when he's attending any services or functions. And uh, the beautiful harp at the back of the seat was carved by... Irish artist Tony Wolfe about 10 years ago. The pew was formerly known as the Royal Box or the Vice Regal Box and on the front of the pew we can see the Royal Coat of Arms. Now probably about 10 or 11 years ago somebody asked our then Dean if he wouldn't consider removing that and replacing it with the presidential harp and while he thought it was a very good idea to in, install and commission the carving of the presidential harp he stated that it would be wrong to remove parts of our history so here we have the two, the royal coat of arms and the presidential harp coexisting side by side both a very important part of the history of the place In perfect harmony I suppose you'd say Absolutely, which leads us nicely on to the choir just to our right here, so as I mentioned the choir was founded in 1432 and the the, the choir stalls here is where the, the, the cathedral choir sit for services. So the front row are where the children would sit. 
the middle row where the men of the choir sit, and then the back row, which are these very ornate stalls with banners and uh, helmets above them. Uh, This is where the clergy sit. Now, the reason we have these ornate banners and helmets are St. Patrick's was the chapel for the Order of the Knights of St. Patrick, which was an order of chivalry in the British Empire. So prior to Irish independence, people loyal to the English crown would have been rewarded with a knighthood and they would have been invested here uh, in St. Patrick's. Now in 1870 the Church of Ireland separated from the state and at that time the Knights of St. Patrick moved their services and their ceremonies to Dublin Castle. So in Dublin Castle in the Chapel Royal you can see the coats of arms carved into the balcony and in St. Patrick's Hall you see the banners And indeed, St. Patrick's Hall is where we have our presidential inauguration now in the 21st century. At the far side, then, that's where the altar is. That's right, yes. And at the moment, we have a beautiful green altar frontal on. Uh, Green signifies ordinary time in the church, so the growth of the church throughout the year. This altar frontal in particular is is a piece of art in itself, and uh, we're very fortunate to have two beautiful sets of altar frontals here. The altar frontals for the high altar were designed by the famous church artist Sir John Ninian Comper around 1912 or so. And the altar frontals for the Lady Chapel at the East End were, were uh, made by the Anglican sisters at Wantage in England. So we're very, very fortunate to have these beautiful pieces of, of art. We're currently trying to restore the ones for the high altar and that restoration work is being carried out by Rachel Phelan, who's an Irish uh, textile conservator who does a lot of work with the, the National Museum of Ireland. Well, we're standing, I suppose, at the centre of the cathedral, at the crossing. So, as you rightly say, to our east we have the choir. Behind us, to, going west, we have the nave. Now, the cathedral is in the shape of a cross, so north and south we have the transepts, or the arms of the cross. And uh, these, these areas over the centuries would have had many different uses. So the north transept was actually used as a separate parish church for a couple of hundred years. And it was the parish church of St. Nicholas without. So it was outside the city walls. And just up the road from us, uh, we have our sister cathedral, Christchurch Cathedral. And across the road from that, the remaining walls of the parish church of St. Nicholas within the walls. St. Nicholas within is now without its roof and St. Nicholas without was within St. Patrick's, so it's really crystal clear. Okay, well we're going to leave that to those that are listening to this particular tradcast to figure all that out. Now over the years too, I would imagine there have been many famous visitors like heads of state, lots of people come to this particular cathedral. Absolutely, yeah. Um, We've had, uh, I suppose... One that's just popped into my mind for some reason. My colleagues at the time got very excited. We had uh, Michael Stipe of REM in one day, and there wasn't too much work done that day. But we've had uh, we've had heads of state, we've had many foreign dignitaries, ambassadors, actresses, musicians. During Tradfest, then, when people come to their concerts here, it's slightly well. It's not that much different. Basically, you have the chairs laid out in the centre of the church and you have a stage here but can people get around and have a look at the church in all its history if you like during that time? 
they can. The arrangement we have with Tradfest works very well for us in that it's it, Tradfest falls in January, which is traditionally for us one of the quieter times of the year. But we do, we're still open for visits during that time. We have over 500,000 visitors a year to the cathedral, plus about another 70,000 to the various concerts and graduation services. Um, those visitors are important because they're important for the upkeep of the establishment. Absolutely. We simply wouldn't be able to open the doors without the, the support of, of visitors. We're, we're looking now at replacing the roof on the cathedral over the next few years, and that's going to come at quite a significant cost. So that, that will be generated you know, in, in, the, in the main through visitor income. So we are, we're very grateful to those who, who come and visit the cathedral. And actually what we'll do now is we'll go into the Lady Chapel, which was our last major project, and uh, I'll talk you through some of the work that happened there. Okay, and as we're heading there, actually, maybe you tell us about the organ here, an important part of the infrastructure here. Yes, we're we're very blessed now, and and have been over over recent decades with the the standard of musicians we have here, both organists and and choir. The the two organists at the moment, David Lee and Stuart Nicholson, are both renowned artists in their field and and give regular recitals both here and further afield. The, the, our own organ here was built uh, in 1901. It'll come as no surprise, given what I've already told you, that it was a gift of Lord Ivy, Edward Cecil Guinness. It is the largest pipe organ in Ireland. There's over 4,000 pipes up there, ranging from a fraction of an inch up to 32 feet in length. So there's four manuals or keyboards and then there's a, a pedal board on it as well. It's, it's a magnificent instrument. And do you get many visitors looking to you know, get a closer, an up-close look at the organ itself? We tend to get maybe visiting organists who have a particular interest. Um, it, it's on the uh, triforium level, which is about 25 feet above where we are now. So it's not accessible, unfortunately, for groups. And besides the accessibility issue, um, it's, it's a sensitive uh, machine so even the, this mini heat wave we're having at the moment is causing it some tuning issues um, but certainly to have a lot of people through it wouldn't be practical in terms of keeping it at its best. Now we've just arrived at this beautiful Lady Chapel you said this is the most recent piece of refurbishment. Yes so the Lady Chapel was restored four years ago. Uh, total cost of about a million euro including re-roofing uh, all of the windows across. There are actually three chapels at this end. So we have St. Stephen's Chapel, the Lady Chapel in the centre, and St. Peter's Chapel. There are 27 windows across the, the three chapels, and they were all restored at that time. They were cleaned. The, the roof was cleaned. All the stonework was cleaned. And then the walls and plasterwork uh, repainted. Beautiful chandeliers, they're Flemish 17th century chandeliers. They were restored at that time as well. And a new lighting system installed. This beautiful furniture was made in County Leitrim and as part of the restoration. So yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful place. It's the first time actually, af after it was restored, was the first time it was open to the public. It was gated off and not open prior to restoration. 
Now, the history of a lady chapel is, is, is one that's common across northern Europe. Around the 12th, 13th century in northern Europe, it, it became common practice to add a chapel to the east end of the cathedral behind the high altar, and these were commonly dedicated to the Blessed Virgin Mary. So that's where we get the name, the Lady Chapel. The Lady Chapel was also known in Dublin for a time as the French Chapel, because in the same way that Roman Catholics in Ireland were persecuted for their beliefs, Protestants in France were persecuted, and many of them fled to Dublin for, for, for safety. These Huguenots... Uh, formed an important part of the Dublin community in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries and they used St. Patrick's from 1666 for about 150 years until they built a church nearby called St. Luke's, so the French chapel. It's very much a distinct separate place, although under the same roof uh, these chapels are separate and we have a daily Eucharist celebrated here on weekdays. I'll just point out this window. I've mentioned Benjamin Lee Guinness and his sons. He did have a daughter as well, Annie Lee Plunkett, and uh, she was married to the Anglican Archbishop of Dublin, uh, Archbishop Plunkett. And she's remembered in this window here with an appropriate piece of scripture for a member of the Guinness family. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. We're heading into the North Choir Isle. Uh, what I should have mentioned about the Lady Chapel was it was built in 1270, so shortly after the cathedral was completed, the Lady Chapel was added, and it was uh, commissioned by Archbishop Folk de Somfort. So his tomb is this one on the right we're just passing here. It's one of the earlier monuments in the cathedral, and it, it dates from around 1270 also. There are over 200 monuments on the walls in the cathedral, so... When we're on a tour, I tend to maybe focus on about 10 or 12 of them. There are so many with such a rich history. But there's an excellent publication by Albert Fenton on the monuments in the cathedral where he's done a bit of a biography on some of the, the people commemorated here, some amazing stories. I do notice they're very different as well as you go to different parts of the church. A huge variety of style. So I think the earliest we have is a 13th century effigy of uh, a subdeacon who would actually be a relatively low-ranking clergyman. So his job would have been to help prepare the altar before the Eucharist and perhaps read the epistle. And then we have right up to the, the St. Patrick and the Madonna and Child in the Lady Chapel by Herkner. So there are two of the newer ones. And in between we have uh, some beautiful uh, sculptures by, by Smith, um, gorgeous brasses by Farrell, so a lovely mix. OK, but let's take a stroll down and maybe you can pick out one or two as we head there. We're just making our way now into the north transept. So this is the area I mentioned earlier was formerly known as the Parish Church of St. Nicholas Without. Uh, it's now uh, an area of remembrance, really. So at the moment we have an exhibition on the cathedral community's involvement in the First World War. So that exhibition has been running since 2014, and it's intended that it will run for four years. The centrepiece of the exhibition is this tree of remembrance. And here we encourage people who have been affected in some way by conflict to leave a message or a prayer on a leaf. The tree itself is modelled on a battle 
scarred tree from the Somme and it was designed by Andrew Smith who is the education officer here in St. Patrick's. Andrew has organised a, a, a programme of education and we were encouraging schools to come and visit the cathedral. We have a fantastic range of free uh, workshops for schools available. I see a smaller organ here as well, do I? Yes, what we're looking at here is the organ console from the, the Willis organ. and This is the console from 1901 and this was replaced in 1963 when the organ underwent a considerable restoration. So it was replaced at that time by a firm called Walkers and it was further restored in the 1990s by Harrison of Durham and it's currently under the excellent care of Trevor Crow, who's a, a, an Irishman who, who's done amazing work making improvements to the instrument in recent years. Above us here is another tree, this time in a window, and this is the newest window in the cathedral, and it depicts many symbols of life. So the figure in blue is said to be the figure of charity, administering to people of all different backgrounds, races and creeds. We have a tree of life at the top, and then right at the very top of the tree we have a pelican feeding its young. This window was installed in the 1930s, it was designed by the famous war artist Frank Branwen and uh, it's in memory of Edward Cecil Guinness, First Lord Ivy. Above us here we have regimental colours and flags and you know people might ask us why do, you, why do you have Union Jacks hanging in the cathedral? What they actually are are regimental colours for Irish regiments prior to independence. So. The, the Royal Dublin Fusiliers, for instance, would be one that was very well known in Dublin, but the Connacht Rangers, the Royal Irish Regiments, etc. So that answers a few questions, I would say, for a few people. It does, it does. And, you know, it's, it's good. To, this is, again, part of the history of, of both St. Patrick's and of Ireland, and one that maybe people weren't that comfortable with. But we find now that, people are a lot more open and comfortable than they were even 10 years ago. Certainly talking about people being comfortable and comfortable in this venue, it has become a central venue for Tradfest over the years. Every artist I think that plays here just finds it a special venue to play and you wouldn't think about it. When you look at the shape of it you'd think that you're going into a, a big cavernous room but in fact the artists get such a, a kick out of playing here. Yes, we've 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 had really amazing sort of positive feedback from all of the artists who've played there. The, the guys that work on, on the production at Tradfest are, have quite a talent for, for getting it right and they know the building so well that uh, they, they just have, have the acoustics down to a T. So we're now going to make our way over to the South Isle where we have some more of our Jonathan Swift memorabilia we also have two monuments here to uh, two Irish presidents. So Douglas Hyde was the first president of Ireland and Erskine Childers was also president of Ireland. So they were both members of the Church of Ireland. Uh, Childers sadly died about a year into office. He's commemorated with this bust here and they both, both of the, their memorials are under the Irish flag here. On our right here we have Jonathan Swift's pulpit. Now I mentioned at the start of the tour the River Poddle. 
Now, for, for centuries, the puddle caused the cathedral authorities severe headaches. Building a cathedral on a riverbed probably wasn't the best idea, but because of its link with Patrick, the site was chosen. And in fact, the river puddle flowed under the cathedral until about 130 years ago, and it's now diverted. It's in a culvert under the street, just outside the west door. So we're not flooded by the river puddle anymore. But Swift's wooden pulpit, a former dean, Dean Griffin, told me that his pulpit was originally on wheels, so it could be moved around if, if uh, the cathedral was flooded. It's also said that if Swift saw somebody asleep in church, he would have the pulpit pushed down, then wake the offending person, and then preach at them. Now, Swift's sermons were typically between two and four hours in length, so this is obviously something that bothered him greatly. Uh, In fact, so much so that we have on display here a copy of one of his sermons, which is called A Sermon Upon Sleeping in Church. Most sermons now tend to be between 8 and 10 minutes, although for, for, for special occasions I think there's a little bit of license given. We do have an annual Swift service and indeed, indeed a Swift symposium is hosted each October and there'll be speakers from all over the world. So uh, that's a two-day event. But the service itself, that, that might be one of the longer sermons in the year, but I think a bit of license is allowed in that. So, just coming up to this case here, we can see some more Swift memorabilia. It was common practice around the time Swift died to take these plaster masks, death masks. So we have two of Swift's death masks here. Um, We also have a cast of his skull. So he died in 1745. Given the work he had done for people with mental health issues, it's rather ironic that he was nicknamed the Mad Dean. It's likely that he had a couple of severe strokes in his latter years, and uh, he was also troubled with imbalance and noise in his ears. So 90 years after he died, his body was exhumed by Sir William Wilde, famous physician with a ward named after him in St. James's Hospital nearby, uh, also famous for being Oscar Wilde's father. But he, he carried out... Uh, uh, exhumation of Swift and examined his skull and found that Swift had a loose bone in his inner ear which would have caused these problems. Menier syndrome was, was, is the medical name uh, of the condition. So uh, we have this cast on display of Swift's skull which was taken before he was reinterred. We also have Swift's rush lamp which would have provided light for him for many of his writings Gulliver's Travels of course being the most famous Uh, also a modest proposal here in which with tongue very firmly planted in cheek he suggested that a solution to the food shortage in Ireland would be for Irish people to eat their babies so uh, caused a bit of outrage at the time and of course a sermon upon sleeping on church has to be on display Just behind us here we have two important documents uh, in relation to Swift. One is the patent from Queen Anne appointing him Dean of St. Patrick's and the other is a parchment from Dublin Corporation as it was known then granting Swift the freedom of the city. Now he was granted the freedom of the city in recognition of his work 
in preventing the introduction of a, a cheap currency from, from Westminster. So the, the, the city council or the corporation as it was known then granted him the, the freedom of the city. Other more recent recipients include uh, Jack Charlton, Nelson Mandela and you too. So he's in the esteemed company. And uh, one would say they are all themselves in esteemed company. Indeed. Yes, Swift, for his many, many talents, uh, he wasn't a modest man. He actually wrote this epitaph himself several years before he passed away and left instruction for it to be carved onto Black Kilkenny marble. It's, it's here in Latin, but the translation is, Here lies the body of Jonathan Swift, Doctor of Divinity and Dean of this cathedral where savage indignation can no longer tear his heart. Go, visitor, and imitate him if you can, this dedicated and earnest champion of liberty. So I think Swift's words are a good place to end the tour. Thank you, Carol. Thank you for listening to the Tradfest podcast. For more information on Tradfest, go to tradfest.ie. Tradfest is brought to you by the Temple Bar Company.